My name is Andy Johnson, and as the slide behind you clearly states, I'm not Buddy Bell. But what I wanted to let you all know this morning is that I do live behind Buddy Bell. Not the bells that normally grace this front pew down here or the one who normally appear on the stage. Our, our neighbors with whom we share a backyard fence are the bells, not those bells, a different set of bells. And you can imagine how happy I was to discover one day soon after we moved in that that little yippy dog that comes to the fence, his name's Buddy. And, and it is hard for me to describe the gratitude that I felt, the worshipful moment I had when in the backyard playing soccer with my children and that little yippy dog was just yipping, our neighbors opened the back door and I kid you not, they shouted, Buddy Bell, shut up! <laughs> Glory of glories, it was a beautiful moment and because, because my children are... are, are, are Sponges, and because they too are walking in the light, whenever that yippy dog gets to yipping, they too will yell, Buddy Bell, shut up. <laughs> and one of the things for which I'm grateful is that at least here to four, my children have yet to yell it actually during a sermon time. <laughs> if that day comes, though, you'll understand why. I am not Buddy Bell, but I am your missions minister. And, uh, and so this morning I wanted to share with you the first of what's going to be something that we hopefully will become a, a regular part of our worship. Um, we're going to begin having missions minutes from time to time. Now what these are going to be, they're going to be brief looks at, at exciting or interesting things that are happening in our missions world. Um, and so this morning what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell you about some of our Tanzanian smugglers. Now by calling our missionaries the smugglers, we're referencing back all the way to the first sermon that Buddy gave in this revolution series. He talked about how we smuggle Christ in our bodies into places where he's not welcome. So I wanted to tell you a story about our missionaries, Kevin and Charity Linderman, who serve in Tanzania. Now, up until now, they've spent a long time planting churches and training leaders among the Sakuma tribe, the largest tribe in all of Tanzania. But what they've been looking towards doing has been to make a transition to include in their ministry public health as a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Yes, we plant churches, yes, we train leaders, and yes, we care about your body now. We want to help you live healthier lives for the glory of the king. So recently, Kevin and his teammates and a bunch of local Christians hosted a series of medical conferences, uh, 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 medical clinics in, in a variety of villages in which Kevin estimates 400 people received good medical care. And every person that came was prayed over by a Christian on the way in. Christians guided them through the process. They were prayed over on the way out. And along the way, they were offered the opportunity to hear presentations of the gospel, and many accepted that. But you want to hear the cool part, the smuggling part, the part that I thought was so interesting? The entire thing was staffed and funded by an Islamic medical school in the Middle East. There was an Islamic medical school that was looking for a place for their senior medical students to come and practice medicine as well as have an opportunity to encounter the developing world. And a buddy of Kevin's, who is a, a Christian who works in the public health sector, heard about this, presented the opportunity to the other Sukuma Christians, and they jumped at the chance to have an Islamic medical school in Qatar foot the bill for them to proclaim the gospel and to heal 400 or so of their, of their colleagues. And so in the end, what happened was 400 people received medical care, they were prayed for, and the gospel was presented, and an Islamic medical school paid for the whole thing. If that's not smuggling, I don't know what it is. <laughs> now, wonderful things like this are happening all the time around the world, and they're, and they're happening 
because of the prayers of Christians. And so I want to encourage you to be in prayer for your Christians. Also be on the lookout for missions prayer nights. They're going to be coming up in the future. So when they pop up, get ready to come and, and let's pray together. Let's pause a moment and let's pray. We give you thanks, Lord, for what you're doing around this world. We thank you that we here at the Landmark Body get to be a part, a, a, a tiny part, of what's happening in Christendom around the world. We thank you for the, for the Lindermans. We thank you for the other missionaries that we have. We thank you for the creative ways that they are expressing the gospel in ways that people can hear. Father, right now we want to invite you into this moment. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be here, that every word that's spoken would be truth, and that hearts would be touched with the message that they need to hear out of your word today. In the Christ, amen. Well, over the last few weeks, um, Buddy has been leading us through the book of Acts. We've been considering this revolution that began with the early church, and we've been, we've been asking questions about what we can learn from those early churches to, to be applied here at the Landmark Church here in Montgomery. Now, Buddy, last week, he, he pulled up his, his stool here, and, and he, we had a very poignant conversation about how Landmark isn't all we're supposed to be, that there are some things that perhaps God has in store for us that we're not doing yet. And he spoke of the fact and, and, and challenged us to ask the question whether or not we're doing things that are impossible if God doesn't show up. What is this church involved in that's impossible for the church to do apart from the power of Christ? And after that, we literally, we got on our knees and we asked God to make us more the bride of Christ that he wants us to be in this time. This hasn't been... This hasn't been a looking back to the 90s or the early 2000s, trying to reclaim something from then. But instead, this, is, this has been a hard look at who we are today and who Christ wants us to be going on into the future. This is what we've been doing as we've been walking through the book of Acts. But this morning, what I wanted to talk about, as we walk through the book of Acts, it's really important to remember that the book of Acts is actually part two. Now, it's not really a sequel. It's, it's more a continuation of a story that was started in the third gospel, in the gospel of Luke. Now, it's something that's easy to forget because somehow, we don't know how it happened, that the gospel of John wiggled its way in there, in between those two. But it's actually one story that's being told from beginning to end. So today, we're going to go back and we're going to take a look at a very significant story in the gospel of Luke, which will help us to understand some of the roots of this revolution that we're hoping to be a part of. Now, Luke's gospel, the third gospel is universally accepted as the gospel of the downtrodden, of the have-nots, of the outsiders. For instance, women, who are at the time very much on the outside of leadership looking in, play a very prominent role in Luke's gospel. Not to mention foreigners, sinners, tax collectors, all other folks who were undesirable at the time. Luke's gospel, book one that comes before the book of Acts, is most definitely the gospel for the have-nots. But something I want us to consider this morning is, is who wrote this thing? The, the, these, these two books of the Bible, who wrote them? We call him Luke. I've already called him Luke several times. He doesn't name himself anywhere in his books. We usually think of him as a doctor. That's, that's a good guess. It's, it's probable, but we don't actually know that for sure either. Um, we do know he's an important guy. Between Luke and Acts, he wrote 52 chapters of the New Testament. And some of them are pretty long. And so he actually wrote, lengthwise, a fourth of the New Testament. So he's an important guy to us. Now, we say he's a doctor. We don't know for sure, but we know he was well-educated because he was so well-read and so well-written. 
I don't know if you've ever treated yourself to, to an afternoon with a cup of coffee that perhaps you bought for Christ, and, and, you, and you sat down and you've just read the book of Luke from start to finish, or the book of Acts, or if you've got all day just to read the two put back together. It's a beautiful story, and it's so well written. that the, the characters come in and they come out. Things are foreshadowed. Things are fulfilled. Luke knew his stuff. He, he knew how to write, and he's a great author. But in those days, only the extremely well-off ever had the opportunity to get that educated. Luke had the opportunity to read and to write and to practice and to refine his writing at a time when most people were just trying to survive. Most folks were just trying to put food on the table. And so what we have is the gospel for the have-nots written by a man who is most definitely a have. It's a very interesting question. Why did Luke choose to tell his story this way? What made him write this book this way? Or another question, what is the good news? Because that's all gospel is. Gospel is just a church word that means good news. What is the good news for the haves in the gospel of the have-nots? And it's a really important question for us. Because simply by your presence here today, you're showing that you're among the world's haves, at least materially. Every one of us here today would be among the world's elite when it comes to finances. And so the question is, what is the good news for us in the gospel of the have-nots? It's a masterfully crafted story of a great reversal. A great reversal in which insiders become outsiders, in which high becomes low and low becomes high, in which poor becomes rich. So where is the good news in all this great reversal for those of us who start in the have category? Well, I think part of the answer is found, not all of it, but part of it's found in the last miracle that Jesus did in the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's found in Luke 19, but we're actually going to start back in Luke 18 with what seems to be a failed miracle. Back in Luke 18, a rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to inherit eternal life. Now, he seemed to be a pretty good guy as he was having this conversation with Christ about the law and the observance of it, at least according to his own words. He followed the law from when he was a youth better than any of us have ever done so. Jesus looked in his heart and said, you still lack one thing. All this stuff that made you a rich young ruler, all these riches, they're hindering your walk. So you've got to get rid of it and you've got to follow me. And Luke tells us that he gets sad at that, po- at that point, and all the other gospel writers tell us that he went away. And then Jesus comments on how hard it is to get rich people into heaven, and he gives us this wonderful image that's, that's become a part of just our everyday language. He said it is easier to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And, and, and this caused the disciples to despair, because in those days, rich people were blessed people. This was how people understood things, and and it's something we probably, on some level, think today as well. If you're rich, you've been blessed. And so basically what the disciples heard in their ears when he said that was that the blessed of God can't get into heaven. So they despaired, and they asked this question. They said, who then can be saved? And Jesus answered, what is impossible with human beings is possible with God. And that brings us, with what turned out to be a lot of ado, to our story in Acts chapter 19. Now, it's a real shame about this chapter break. You have to understand, these chapter breaks that we have, they're not inspired. 
They've been around about a thousand years, but, but sometimes they do us a disservice. I really think Luke intended us to look at the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus side by side. So we're going to do that today. We're going to read Acts 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho, he being Jesus, and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. Now all who saw it, not some, all who saw it began to grumble and said, He's gone to be the guest of one who's a sinner. So Zacchaeus stood there, and he said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'm going to pay them back four times as much as I took. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Did you catch it? Did you see what happened right there? I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it again, but don't blink because you'll miss it, but it's really important. Hear this. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus, right there in front of God and everyone, did it. He had just a few verses before said, it's impossible. Rich people don't go to heaven. And he does it. Just a few verses later, he does this miracle. He heals Zacchaeus of that which prevents him from following after him. And I absolutely believe Jesus would have considered this a miracle. For the Christ, I believe he he looked at his healings and his exorcisms and his resurrections and even salvations as signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And all of them can only happen by the grace and the power of God. And so he did this miracle of healing Zacchaeus. So what I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at is considering this great reversal. I think it's a, I think it's a two-part movement that takes him toward redemption. So that's what we're going to look at. So first of all, part one, Zacchaeus was rich. We need to remember that. The, the guy was rich. He counted on his money. He was a chief tax collector for a living. He counted on his money. It was his strength. It was the thing that defined him. It was what he looked toward to make, give himself worth. Now, in order for salvation to come to his house, he had to make room for that. He had to get rid of his wealth in order that salvation might come into his house. And in fact, he went beyond that and he made restitution to those he'd wronged. Now, in fact, this was something that he did even above and beyond what the law required. If you look at Exodus and Leviticus and you see what you're supposed to do if you get busted stealing, Zacchaeus did way more than he was supposed to do. But in so doing, salvation came to his house. I believe that what happened is that that's what, which, which was high got brought low. His dependence on money became a dependence on Christ. Now this thing, this, this salvation which has come to his house, it's a pretty big deal in Luke's gospel. Luke talks about salvation more than any other gospel writer. So what's it mean? What does he mean when he says salvation? What's he got in mind? Well, I think, first of all, it helps us to to ask the question, what does he not have in mind? What does it mean to be lost in Luke's gospel? 
First of all, it doesn't mean you're damned. That's not, that's not what he's thinking in, in the Gospel of Luke. I believe that in the Gospel of Luke, what he means when he says you're lost is that you're not in the right place. I think that's all he means. One of Christianity's favorite chapters, one of those chapters where they got the chapter divide right, is Luke chapter 15, where we've got three stories that Christians love about three things, all of which got lost. There's a sheep that's not where it's supposed to be, there's a coin that's not where it's supposed to be, and there's a son who's not where he's supposed to be. They're all lost from their rightful place. The sheep's not with the flock, the coin's not in the purse, and the son's not with the family. And how do they get found? Well, how does salvation come to them? They get put back in the right place. So in Luke's gospel, moving from lost to found Moving from unsaved to saved means getting put back in the right place. Now, in Luke's gospel, salvation is something that happens right now. It's part of experiencing the reign of God in this time and in this place. And so, it's, so yes, Luke has a, a forward look to it. There, there is a place to which we're all going. But it's also for today. There is a place for us today. So that's the first half. That which was high got brought low. Now we need to consider the rest of the reversal. We need to think about Zacchaeus again. Yes, the guy was rich. He had a lot of money. And normally that's what we focus on. We talk a little bit about his job more as the mode for getting that money rather than something else. But I believe, I think we have a really hard time understanding how much people hated Zacchaeus. And I think the reason we don't understand it is because we're not defeated. We're not conquered. We don't have traitors among us who serve those who rule over us against our will. When money gets taken out of our check every month, we're not paying tribute to a foreign power. We're paying taxes for our own government. And sometimes it doesn't go the way we want it to, but we're not defeated. We're not conquered. We're not betrayed by some of our own people. So it's hard for us to truly understand the level of contempt that people had for Zacchaeus. Because beyond just serving the Romans, I mean, somebody had to. But beyond just serving the Romans, he also benefited. He stole from his own people. He had the opportunity and he took it and he stole from them. To give you an idea of what they thought of them, there's there's an ancient Jewish commentary called the Talmud. And it says you can lie to three kinds of people without it being a sin. You can lie to murderers, you can lie to thieves, and yep, tax collectors. Those are the three kinds of people you can lie to and not have it count against you. And so, when you say Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector to a Jew at the time, they put him in that category. Liars, murderers, uh, thieves, murderers, and tax collectors. So so Zacchaeus was on the outside of the community. Secondly, he was short. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. That's why he climbed up in that sycamore tree for, let's all say it together, the Lord he wanted to see. I asked Wes if the praise team could, could do that as a, as a special one, but he didn't think they had time to get it ready. Now, in those days, stature, particularly short stature, was a sign of God's disfavor. Now, obviously, they understood things wrong. Obviously, they were looking in the mirror dimly. Obviously, they were not thinking the, the, the thoughts of of man, they, they were thinking with the thoughts of man. They were not thinking of the godly thoughts because stature has absolutely nothing to do with God's favor. Can I get an amen, Nathan Caps? Thank you. <laughs> so we today know that's not the case, but at the time, 
short people were viewed as cursed. So here's my point. Zacchaeus was on the outs because he was a traitor and because he was cursed. Those are two strikes against him that put him outside the community, a traitor and cursed by God. So here's something I want you to listen to. I want you to listen how the story ends, and I really want you to pay attention to the pronoun. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. What a difference a pronoun makes. I'd written here, pause for applause from the English professors, but I didn't get it. (laughs) Jesus starts his sentence addressing Zacchaeus. He says, salvation has come to this house, talking to Zacchaeus still. But then he changes, and he says, because he too is a son of Abraham. That shift from you to he means he's not talking to Zacchaeus anymore. Who is he talking to? Everybody else. The Christ is standing up, and in front of everybody else, he plants Zacchaeus back in the kingdom. He puts him back where he goes. I love how Peterson drew this out in his paraphrase, the message. He wrote, today is salvation day in this home. Here he is, Zacchaeus, son of Abraham. For the son of man came to find and restore the lost. Jesus finds the lost Zacchaeus and puts him back where he belongs, back among the people of God. Jesus takes that which is low in Zacchaeus, his rejection, his loneliness, his lowliness, and he brings it up high. But I don't want you to miss this. He goes even further. Jesus says that salvation comes because he is a son of Abraham. Why did salvation come? Because he too belongs to the community. Being restored to the community of God is an important part of the salvation process. Now, salvation is made up of a whole lot of things, but part of it is becoming a part of this church family. Being a part of the people of God is a part of being saved. Now, in case you think I'm making this up, this isn't the only time that Jesus does this in the book of Luke. There's a few other times. In fact, he records Jesus as making kind of a semi-regular habit of bringing outsiders in. Back in chapter 7, he's talking to a Roman centurion. And this is a man who would have been absolutely hated. He was the very symbol of Roman oppression. And he asked him to heal his servant. And Jesus does. And before he finishes this, this little story, Jesus says to the whole community, nowhere else in Israel, and by the way, he's talking to a bunch of Israelites, nowhere else in Israel have I ever found faith like this man's. And so he speaks good things of him in front of the community. Another time this happens... There are 10 lepers that Jesus heals. You want to talk to people who are on the outside of the community. It's lepers. They, they, were, they were literally unable to be among the community. And Jesus heals all 10 of them, and only one comes back. And Luke goes out of his way to make clear to us that the one who comes back is a Samaritan. And so he's a Samaritan leper. Would have been hated by all the Jews. And what does Jesus do? In front of everybody, he says that this man is now a part of the fellowship. It's his practice to bring people into the fellowship. We see three examples, a hated Roman centurion, a revolting Samaritan leper, and a Jewish traitor. And all three of them, Jesus says to the community, this person too belongs. If you need any more evidence, Luke, who I mentioned is a great author, he bookends this phase of Jesus' life with two stories about tax collectors who find salvation. Way back in chapter 5, 
And if you consider Luke-Acts' one big work of 52 chapters, chapter 5 is going way back to the beginning, where he calls Levi. He calls Levi to come and follow him. And Levi leaves everything and follows him. And at the end, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. At the end, as at the beginning, Jesus calls tax collectors, one of whom leaves his booth, one of whom climbs out of his tree, and he makes it clear that he has come to earth precisely for these moments, these moments of great reversal when that which is high gets brought low and that which is low gets brought high. There's one final touch I want you to notice before we start to conclude. It's it's a nice little nugget that Luke buried in this story for us. He begins the story of Zacchaeus by saying that Zacchaeus wanted or sought to see Jesus. And he ends with saying that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Now we lose some of this in our English translations, but Luke uses the very same verb both times. He says that Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus and that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It's one last touch that Luke threw in for us to show us that at the very moment Zacchaeus was wanting and seeking to see Jesus, Jesus was already seeking to see him. I want you to hear this clearly, friends, because this is something I've experienced and I know a lot of you have too. When you finally make that move to follow Jesus, when you finally try to see him from that tree you've been hiding in, you're going to find that Jesus is already looking for you. He's already looking up at that tree where you are, and he wants to come home to your house for dinner. He wants to make you found. All right, well, where's our landing place today? Where do we end? Today, we've spoken of lots of impossible things. We've spoken of camels going through needles, highs getting brought low, lows getting brought high. We've spoken of the lost getting found, spoken of outsiders being brought in. So let's end where we began with the question, what's the good news in the have-not gospel for those of us who are haves. The good news, even though it doesn't sound like it, the good news is that not a one of us are haves through and through. We all, every one of us, do have something in us that makes us a have, that keeps us up in the tree. For Zacchaeus, it was his money. For all of us, we have different things that keep us in that tree. That's our have. And it's the thing that Christ needs to bring low in order for salvation to come to our house. Jesus is waiting to come to your house and to share a meal with you, and to help you bring low that which is too high in your life. Our status as a have is actually a lot more tenuous than is the reality. We also all have something in our lives that's a low. It's that thing that we're ashamed of, that thing that's impossible to fix, that thing that we think is going to keep us forever outside of the community of God. And Jesus is waiting In fact, he is seeking to bring that low up into something high. He's waiting to take you, the lost, and make you the found. He's waiting for that moment when in front of the whole community, the Christ gets to proclaim, he too, she too, is a son or a daughter of God. Now in closing, I've written four questions at the bottom of your outline. What I'd like to challenge you to do is to pick two. I want you to pick two of these and answer them right now. Last week, Buddy asked you to write down how you plan to make war on complacency. This week, I want you to answer two of these impossible questions. And I want you to take them to the one with whom all things are possible. Number one, who in your life is impossible to save? Who is so lost that they're beyond hope? 
I think even as I ask this, you know who they are. It's, it's that coworker that you can't imagine them ever lifting hands in praise. Or it's, it's that brother-in-law who is so proud that you know he'll never bend his knees. Or maybe it's that friend of yours who just loves to make fun of your faith. Whoever it is, write down this impossible person. Write down these camels that can never squeeze through needles and commit to praying for them by name. And ask God to bring that camel through the eye of the needle and ask God to use you to be a part of helping salvation come to their house today. Number two, what in your life is impossible to be made right? What is impossible to be found about you? What is it that keeps defeating you every single time you try to tackle it? What stronghold does our enemy have on you that you can't seem to break? Well, write it down and turn it over to the one who's already defeated sin and death in your body. The one who delights in doing the impossible because remember, he's broken the power of sin and death in your life. Claim that victory and turn it over to him. Number three, what high in your life is keeping you from climbing out of that tree and bringing Jesus to your house today? What is Jesus waiting to bring low so that he can do something impossible in your life? What are you hanging on to that one day might, might, wake you, might make you walk away sad? Write it down and decide today what it's going to take to get rid of it, to get rid of that thing. And finally, this might be the hardest one, who in this church has Jesus accepted and restored to fellowship with the community that you're still refusing? Maybe it's a race thing. Maybe it's a money thing. Maybe it's a hurt feelings thing. Maybe they stole your girlfriend in fifth grade. Maybe it was, maybe it's a hurt that runs a lot deeper than that. Maybe it's the kind of hurt that we don't talk about very often. The kind of hurt between a man and a woman or between an older man and younger men. Maybe it's that kind of hurt. Write down that person's name and decide to take the first step or or perhaps even by the grace of God, take all the steps in between to be a part of that impossible thing that God is doing in their life of restoring them to be a part of the community. And why do we need to do that? Because they too are a child of the king. So I'm asking you right now to write them down. Um, Two out of four is what I'm asking. You might only be able to do one, and that's totally okay. I'm not going to check you on the way out. But as the praise team comes up on stage, I want to remind you that none of this has to or ought to ever happen alone. By the grace of God, brothers and sisters, you have been found. You are among family today. You're among family. We are fellow travelers on this road. All of us have spent time in that sycamore tree. We have all also had the privilege of welcoming Christ to our home for dinner. We have all also had to pay back what we stole. And we're all also finding grace in the community of God. No matter where you are in your personal story, I guarantee you that someone in this church family understands you. So if you'd like us to pray for you today in response to any of the questions that you've written down or to any other need that you might have, then please come to this front row while we sing together.